Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 131 of the Medieval Podcast. I'm Danielle Sabalski, also known as the 5-Minute Medievalist. If you were suddenly transported back into Northern Europe in the latter part of the Middle Ages, there are a lot of things that you might immediately notice. The landscape, the lack of white noise from machines, and the fact that a lot of the people you come across are sporting something shiny on their clothes or hats. A badge. This week, I spoke with Anne-Marie Rasmussen about medieval badges. Anne-Marie is the Associate Chair of Graduate Studies and a Professor and Diefenbaker Memorial Chair in German Literary Studies at the University of Waterloo. In addition to the many books she's co-edited and translated, she is the author of Mothers and Daughters in Medieval German Literature and the brand new book, Medieval Badges, Their Wearers and Their Worlds. Here's our conversation on when, why, and how medieval badges were made and worn, as well as who was wearing them. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus well thanks Anne marie for joining me to talk about medieval badges i think this is something that we could all learn more about whether we are just regular people on the street or academics so thanks for joining me thank you thank you for the invitation i look forward to our conversation yeah me too so i've just read your book and your book starts with the same question that i always start everything with and that is what is it so <laughs> what are medieval badges medieval badges are small mass-produced objects made out of metal, made out of pewter, which was a lead tin alloy in the Middle Ages. They were produced from around 1200 into the into around 1500, and they were mass-produced by having a mold made out of some kind of stone, usually shale, and then the molten pewter, which it melts at a relatively low temperature and hardens very quickly, would be poured into the mold. They're dead easy to make. And you can use a mold again and again and again to make hundreds or maybe even thousands of them. And they have an image on them that was familiar to most people and that signified something else, their true signs. And people wore them on clothing. So they were made either to be sewn onto outerwear of some kind, usually a hat or a cloak, or to be pinned. 
And then there are some subcategories, but we'll leave it <laughs> at that. So, I mean, the takeaway is they were ubiquitous. They were mass produced. They were cheap because they're made out of a very cheap metal. And they signaled something about identity or belonging. Yes, and we're definitely going to dive into that in a second. So you've used the word mass-produced, which is something that we don't usually hear when we're talking about the Middle Ages. So who was creating these at such a scale? Well, they were being made by leadsmiths, I suppose. They're the people who are actually doing the pouring. But who produces the mold is a different question because the mold determines the final object, right? And so some of the molds are... You can see from the final object, some molds survive, by the way, which is a different question, but some of them are absolutely exquisite. Some of the objects are exquisite, the molds are exquisite, and that suggests, and the written record also suggests that they were made by goldsmiths or engravers. So these were artisans who had very, very highly developed crafting skills and drawing skills. And other badges are quite, quite, I mean, I just want to say primitive, I'm sorry, in their execution. (laughs) which suggests that they were made very quickly, maybe even by the founders, this is what a pewtersmith is called, who poured the badge. So there's a wide variety of things. Is that you? So they were, they were made by artisans and craftspeople. Yeah, and so I think you could probably find these everywhere, and we'll get to that too in a second, but you're saying that these are ubiquitous. So who is wearing badges in the Middle Ages? So I should qualify that by saying they, we, that we know for sure that they're ubiquitous in, let's just call it Europe north of the Alps. Right. Okay. There are some distribution questions that may or may not have to do with use or survival. We don't know. But who's wearing them? So who's wearing them in the places where they, we know they're most heavily used, which would be northern France, England, and Scotland, the low countries for sure, Scandinavia, and Germany across Germany, across particularly the northern reaches of Germany. Who's wearing them? Everybody is wearing them. This is what I think. You could find objects that would be made, badge-like objects that would be made in precious materials. They don't survive very well, but we know they exist. existed. And the other ones, the cheap ones that exist, the lead tin ones, would have been affordable to almost anyone in an urban center. And then at the farther end of the scale, we know also that badge-like objects were made out of things like bread. or or they were put on paper or leather and those things just simply they almost don't survive they're very very so they would have been extremely cheap easy to wear and use and to acquire but they survive very very poorly so there are a range of objects and that range means that they could have been worn and were worn by virtually anybody who wanted to wear one and I think that when people come across medieval badges the first place that they come across them and certainly the most popular type of medieval badge seems to be religious ones. So can you tell us a little bit about religious badges? Yes, that's a really good question. Because in German, in fact, the the typical word that's used for these objects is Pilgerzeichen, or pilgrimage badge. And that's because they're best known because they began being created from the very beginning in association with specific holy sites. I mean, scholars often call them cult sites, but that doesn't mean cult in the modern sense of the word. That just means a a holy site where there's a shrine and where people from outside of the parish come to partake in rituals or to pray for specific reasons. So these objects emerge really early on in connection with special holy sites. And those special holy sites are overwhelmingly sites where there is a tomb and a shrine 
associated with a very powerful saint. Now, there are some exceptions here as well, but we'll just go with that. Okay. And so these tomb shrines that are associated with these venerated deceased people who are understood to have a special connection with the divine, they attract people. So believers come to those places to take part in rituals, often to ask for some kind of help from the saint or to fulfill a contract. Say they've prayed to the saint and the saint has granted their wish. And then they've promised the saint that if their wish is granted, then they'll visit the saint shrine. And so they'll go there to fulfill their end of the, their part of the bargain, if you will. And we know that badges like this are sold at pilgrim sites and that people would acquire these badges that had the imagery associated with that site at that place and then take them home with them. And would they be doing this just as souvenirs? Why do they want to get a pilgrim's badge when they go to a shrine? I mean, you could call them and people do call them souvenirs because they, you know, they do overlap with our understanding of souvenirs, right? They remind you of the place that you've been, the remembrance of that. But I think for many people, they were much more than that. I think that because there were rituals that could involve, say, touching the badge to the shrine, and that could be understood as a way of sort of, to use a very modern metaphor, downloading, <laughs> infusing is perhaps a better, a better metaphor, infusing that little object with some of the divinity that's sort of radiating from this immensely holy site. And then you take that divinity with you for a while. So you're really taking not just a remembrance of the site, but you're in this belief system, you're taking some of the power of the site with you. And you're also identifying to others that you've been to that place so that other people can see as you wear this, it says to everybody that you meet on the road because you're walking, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you're rich and you can ride, can see that you're either going to that place or have come from that place. Yeah. So you're identifying yourself as kind of a, if you think of pilgrims as a member of the household of the, of the saint, then you're announcing to others that you're a part of that household. <laughs> yeah, you can collect them like badges today. You can collect them as well and show everyone <laughs> well, where you've been. There, there are images. So we have images from altarpieces primarily of pilgrims, of people wearing badges. And they often have more than one image, more than one badge on their hat or cloak. And sometimes, depends on on the painter, you know, but sometimes you can identify some of them as well. And those painted, those representations, the representations, of course, of badges tend to be ones that are, many of them are recognizable sites. Yeah. I want to talk about the recognizability in a second, but one of the things that I thought before we leave pilgrimage behind that I thought was interesting in the book is that you also mentioned that pilgrimage can be a vicarious activity. So how would badges fall into that? I think I'm quite speculative about that in the, uh, in the <laughs> book. But at least in Northern Europe by the 15th century, it is a not uncommon practice for people to send others on pilgrimage in their stead. And it was understood that when this was done correctly, that the, um, that the pilgrimage itself and the prayers said at the shrine site uh, would accrue, as it were, to the patron or the donor who was sending the pilgrims there. You know, we don't know if those pilgrims acquired badges or not. But what's interesting as a historian is that the evidence where we see these practices is in wills, 
in surviving medieval wills. And medieval wills, surprising numbers of medieval wills survived from Northern Europe. That's where I know. I mean, they may survive from other places, but that's just the region that I know. And those wills, if they direct people to go on pilgrimage in their name, sometimes as a condition of inheriting, for example. So what's interesting here is that the places people get sent to and the places that have that where we know badges, pilgrim badges are produced overlap completely. (laughs) I think that's so interesting. And then we also have stories about people bringing back a whole bunch of badges and and passing them out as little pieces of the saint or divinity to to give to people when they get back. That's right. So we have some account books. Sometimes you find things about medieval objects and medieval practices in very mundane places. Account books aren't something that survived very well, because why would you need an account book? 150 years after everyone mentioned in the account book is dead, but sometimes they survive for whatever reason. And in some of them, this would be the account books of uh, merchants or of nobility. And there indeed, we see exactly what you suggest, Danielle. We see the accountant, as it were, saying, item, it always says item, item, mm-hmm. 15 whatever pennies for 10 pewter brooches from Vilsnach or something like that. And, and then the assumption is that the Lord is then going to distribute those. So this is an interesting example because then the question is, are they functioning as a religious badge or are they functioning as a secular badge? They're functioning in some sense as both, both bringing some of this holiness from the site, but also by wearing it, if it's been gifted to you by the nobleman or the prince, then as a sign of your belonging to his household as well. Yes. And again, we keep previewing a bunch of stuff I want to come back to, but the last place I want to go with the pilgrimage badges, which I think is really interesting you get out in the book, is these mirror badges, which I think are fascinating. Can you tell us about mirror badges? So mirror badges are very, very interesting. And to the best of my understanding, they originate at a specific pilgrimage site at a specific time. And they originate in the city of Aachen, which is not called Aachen in English. What's it called in English? I don't know. I always called it Aachen. (laughs) Anyway, it's Aachen. And what a pilgrim badge with a mirror is, these badges survive that have mirrors built into them. They're just, they're little mirrors. They have other iconography as well, but they have mirrors square, but very often round mirrors. And so what we think is that this pilgrim site, Aachen, was probably the most visited site in Europe, on continental Europe, north of the Alps. And it had a number of holy relics from the Virgin Mary, from Christ himself, from Charlemagne, very powerful, very powerful, venerable figures. And these relics would be displayed every seven years, I think they would be brought out. Otherwise, they were kept in safekeeping, you know. And um, by the 1300s, this seven-year showing of the relics was attracting literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people. This is a functionalist explanation. And so the explanation is that it goes back to, remember when I said that you acquired a badge and then you touched it to the shrine, the shrine of the saint, in order to have that badge sort of collect this radiant power that's flowing out of it. Well, touch really matters in this world. That touching matters. You want to touch the tomb, have the badge, touch the tomb. But when there are thousands and thousands of people amassed around these holy objects. And furthermore, you know, they're being held up to be seen, but nobody is allowed to touch them because they're so fragile. How do you manage touch? How do you make that last 
connection. And so the explanation is that in the medieval worldviews, touch and sight are very, very closely aligned. Modern people tend to think of sight as being a distancing thing. That's the dominant paradigm. That's what you learn in university. That's what everybody says, that sight distances us from what is seen. But in the Middle Ages, there was a theory that didn't believe that, that said that sight is like touch. And therefore, sight is very dangerous because Mm -hmm. things can come in through your eyes and impress themselves upon you. That's like the evil eye. It can get in Mm -hmm. and touch you, touch your soul through the eyes. And at the same time, your eyes can go out and touch other things and touch other people. So there's this close analogy. Sight is powerful in a different way. It's not distancing. It's potentially intimate, a bringing together. So if you adopt that theory of seeing, then the mirror can touch the relic or the tomb. By holding it up, the mirror can see this distant object, and that seeing can impress itself upon the mirror. And therefore, the radiant power of that relic can be captured for a time in the mirror and from that can come to you. I think that is so fascinating. And if someone has not written a paper on these mirror badges and on people taking pictures with their cell phones at a concert, someone needs to write that paper because I think that would be really interesting. Yes, I think I talk, maybe not in, do I talk in the book a little bit about emojis and badges? You mentioned emojis just, I mentioned just in emojis one line, yeah. Too, one line because there's a really good article on this that begins that process of thinking about this. And I, I agree with you. I don't think that these analogies are easy, really. Mm-hmm. I think that when you dig into the analogy of the mirror and the cell phone and the um, image versus touch, you're going to see differences big differences as well. But what I find most interesting about those kinds of explorations is that they reveal to us an enormous number of the assumptions we make about perception and reality. (laughs) And those perceptions that modern people have, those understandings that we have about perception and reality are cultural constructs. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think that would be a very interesting paper to undertake. (laughs) So we'll just put that out there and someone who's listening maybe can write that paper. Okay, so let's come back to badges for a second. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you can wear a badge to show that you are a member of a household. So can you tell us how that worked in the Middle Ages? Well, there are also a lot of secular badges, and these are less, less researched than the pilgrim badges. And the secular badges, there's a wide range of them. But one category of the secular badges are badges that were made by households. This is sort of high Middle Ages now, high and and later Middle Ages, where they're made by households to be worn as a part of the livery, as it's called, of the members of the household. And that can range from kin to uh, retinue to servants and others who are associated with a household. So medieval aristocrats in in Northern Europe made a great deal of the possibilities for symbolic display. We know this, the sumptuous dress, beautiful clothing, choosing specific colors. We know about heraldry, for example, which is a kind of a language, a symbolic language in which you can communicate quite specifically aspects of your kin structure or belonging structures through a symbolic language that has a careful syntax, really just like spoken language does. 
So often these nobility would take a symbol that was associated with, often with their heraldry, they would take a symbol that was a piece of that, and then they would associate that with themselves. So the easiest example of this are the uh, Plantagenet, the kings, who loved this, and they did this a lot. (laughs) So uh, the easiest example is one of the Richards, and his symbol was a stag. That was Richard II. Richard II, exactly. So we'll just say Richard II, his symbol is a stag, and it's a pun on his name, because rich is the first part, and a heart, H-A-R-T, is another word for stag. So it's a pun on his name. There's oh, that's a nice. lot of yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of punning that goes on here. Yeah. So people wore that image and everybody is actually familiar with this way of tracking allegiances if you will and through the war of the roses because the Lancasters and the uh, Yorks one had a white rose their symbol was a white rose and the other was the red rose and Henry Tudor famously combines the two roses together into this. And these were also made as tiny little pewter badges that people could wear. Presumably, they were then colored in some way. So you could see one was white, one was red. They were also used by the French nobility. It was a civil war in the at the beginning of the 15th century, very bloody civil war in France. And there also, the, the two sides had specific badges that they used, different signs that they used and that they identified each other by. Right. And I think you're getting at something that's a huge through line in the book and really important when we're talking about badges. And that is, they are meant to be read and they are meant to be recognized. They're not usually meant to be obscure, but for everyone to know who somebody is just by looking at them, right? So they are signs. This is what they're called. And a sign in semiotics is an arbitrary thing. It can be sounds or, in this case, an image that signifies or refers to something else. In other words, it's a complicated thing because there's a message and there's a receiver and a sender, right? So it's already a complex little piece of communication. In Latin and in French and in German, this is actually what they're still called. They're called, in German, a Zeichen, which means sign. Where the English word badge comes from, nobody, not even the OED seems to know. But in French and so on. So they're actually called signs, even in the medieval taken in a medieval Dutch. That's what they're called in the medieval languages as well. Well, if a sign is going to do its work, then it needs to be clear. So if you want to communicate quickly and easily, then you have to have a sign that is familiar. And you also have to have a design, I think, that communicates itself clearly and easily. I could say more, but I want to wait for you to ask instead. <laughs> I, was thinking about failed, I was thinking about failed signs and successful signs. So failed badges and successful badges too. Okay. Well, I was going to say one of the most successful signs, one of the most successful badges has to be the ones from Santiago. So Oh, I think that's the winner. That's the winner because we still recognize it today. The scallop shell that's associated with Compostela and um, St. James the Greater. Yeah. So anyone who's never come across medieval badges and they're looking at manuscripts, if you see that shell, that's someone who has been to Compostela or they know someone who's been to Compostela or they venerate St. James 
So that is an easy sign to notice. There are some that are more obscure. I don't know if this is where you're going, but the place I need to go, of course, is the more lewd badges oh. that you see. <laughs> we yeah, can go me, back yeah, to that later. Let me say something more about Compostela because before we go from the sublime to the ridiculous, <laughs> well, um, the Compostela badges are interesting too because they also appear as the actual natural object, as the scallop shell. So they're also then created as objects in shale molds. So you have a, you have a pewter shell. Yeah, you might have a pewter shell that has a little, the little St. James figure on it. There are different ways. But this is one of the very few cases that I know of where the actual natural object with a couple holes sort of drilled into it will then be repurposed into a badge. This raises all kinds of interesting theoretical issues of representation. But the reason I bring it up is because I've seen photographs that I couldn't reproduce from medieval archaeological excavations of cemeteries where you see a grave has been opened and there's a skeleton there and what survives is the skeleton and then two of these shells lying on the skeleton. So this is someone who is actually buried with these Compostela shells, suggesting that probably that they had been there, although they might have been gifted them, I suppose, as well. Other kinds of secular badges. So groups make badges of different kinds. I talked about households, noble families, but in the civil wars in France, these were factions that had, uh, had a specific badge, not a family. And then there's this category of, well, let's call them, following my friend Karma Lakri, let's call them ludic badges, <laughs> badges, ludic badges. There are a fair number of them. And it's funny things like wild men, and animals of different kinds. Uh, what just comes into my mind is a, a boar playing a bagpipe, Yeah, for example. <laughs> Lots of funny things like that. And in that group of ludic badges, there's also a subset of, it's a small number, but enough of obscene badges. These ludic badges, these playful badges, all overwhelmingly come from the Low Countries, with a few also having been found in Southern England. Not very many, but some. But, the, but overwhelmingly, they survived from the Low Countries, which is a fact that deserves further investigation. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought this is where... But, 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 yeah. But the imagery on the obscene or sexual badges, that imagery shows up in other contexts all across Europe. And the most famous of these are the penis badges, mm -hmm. right? So these badges show penises and they're usually, they're walking. So they have legs, they're wearing shoes, they have wings, they have a tail, and they often have a bell on them. There are also some that show penises perched in trees. You have to come back to the wings. There are also vulva badges, but we'll stick with the uh, penis badges first, because those are the ones where we see that imagery in other places. So it shows up in manuscript illuminations in marginalia. There's a very famous fresco in Italy that is at the site of a public well, and it shows women plucking these sort of penis fruit out of a tree. <laughs> There's another one of those in Tyrol as well. 
And then there are stories in medieval German, obscene stories that that's actually how I got into this was I was working on these stories that tell stories about creatures like this, (laughs) wandering around the world, having misadventures. (laughs) I haven't read those yet, but now I need to. (laughs) Well, I thought we were heading in this direction because these are some of the ones that seem to have an obscure meaning. So usually you'll see a badge and you'll know exactly what it means, who it's for, you know, who it represents. But with these ones that are obscene, we don't know at this distance what they might have meant. Although it's very possible that the people who saw them at the time knew what they meant and we've lost that sense of what they are. But these are the ones that I think you mentioned in the book are perhaps the most obscure of the ones that have been found archaeologically. I think they're obscure for the reason you say. I think it's because we've lost the context that explains them. So by the time you get into the 15th century, at the end of the Middle Ages, There are other badges that are deliberately obscure. And these are badges, for example, sometimes there are obscene badges that have inscriptions on them. And these inscriptions often contrast with or comment on the image. So I'm bringing this up because these are actually images with inscriptions that actually take some time to decipher and decode. And I think this is actually perfectly well explained by the fact that the uh, cultural expectation is that a badge should convey its meaning quickly and easily. I think that these are objects that are actually playing with that cultural expectation. And they're also assuming that, you know, that somebody who looks at this can read and that that person who can read can get the joke about the way the inscription and the image are sort of in opposition or in an argument with each other. So they're not so much obscure as they they require deciphering. And what they suggest is that this is a world, whatever world it is, whatever subworld it is that these kinds of badges belong in, that this is a world where people really enjoy sophisticated like puzzles and humor and decoding things like this, and that they're very smart about the differences between the way images mean, make meaning, and the way language makes meaning. Yeah, this is reminding me as you're talking about it, of the way that people are using emojis again as a sign, a sign language where they're playing with it. And it's no good if it's so obscure that no one can get it. (laughs) It has to be a language that people can still decode and read. Right. Well, I mean, it's like language. What uses language if no one can understand you? (laughs) And I think it's interesting, too, because it seems to me that one of the modern myths about the late Middle Ages is that people are largely illiterate, Mm -hmm. that they can't read, and that they live in a world in which there are very few images. And that, you know, they live in a sort of world that lacks symbolism, lacks lacks color, that they have no access to these things. And so they're sort of... um, yeah, they're illiterate, but also image deprived, <laughs> unable, to, unable to decipher and make sense of representations of images. And I just think this is when you look at something like all of these badges, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them circulating in worlds that are awash with public imagery, not just hidden behind the rude screen at the high altar, but with nobility wearing this incredible expensive clothing and it's on their horses and it's on their tents and it's, and there are signs everywhere hanging outside of things. And there's tapestries everywhere. And there's 
frescoes on, you know, there's frescoes on the outside of buildings, on the inside of buildings and public buildings, and there's carved statuary everywhere that you can look at and see, and much of it is colored as well. This is a world in which most people could navigate complex meaning very well. Yeah, I think that the idea that people couldn't read signs or images is completely ridiculous. You just need to look at the outside of a Gothic church. They're just absolutely covered, as you say, in symbolism. And people could read it, no problem, because that's, that's their culture, that's their world. I just finished reading a brilliant study of Gothic sculpture by an art historian named Paul Binsky. It's called Gothic Sculpture. And he begins um, by interrogating, by talking about and investigating these public monuments. And this is exactly what he talks about, that these monuments are crafted and made to hold onto the beholder, the looker, who is being asked to engage in slow, careful looking and interpretation and understanding, and that they are designed and crafted with this in mind. So for this intellectual work. Exactly. And just because a language is visual, it doesn't mean it's not complex. (laughs) Well, indeed, they're they're very (laughs) complex. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I I do want to get you to, to tell us one more thing before we go, and that is, so millions and millions of badges were probably made. Why do so few in relative terms exist? We still have tens of thousands that exist, but why do so few exist now? Well, first of all, I mean, I mean, really a lot have survived. The resource that I use all the time, which is this absolutely fabulous database, the medieval database that's called Kunara, which is an ongoing project in the low countries of cataloging, basically, they have like 20,000 cataloged and there are more. They don't have all of them. So that's a lot of objects to survive from the Middle Ages. Why they don't survive? They disintegrate. They disintegrate. They disappear. Yeah. I think that's something that we, we need to look at because when we see them, they're always quite tarnished. And that's just a feature of the metal that they're made from. And one of the points that you mentioned in the book that I think is really important for the scholars that are listening is Whenever I see someone talk about how there are badges in a river, people must have thrown them there. <laughs> Why would you go and buy, buy a badge and then cross the river and throw it in? But you mentioned in the book that this is probably oh. because they were also recycled, right? There's a theory that was inadvertently launched by an English historian. First of all, we find, we find badges. Badges survive in generally in wet environments. So a lot of them come out of rivers. And so the, this first theory was proposed that people threw them in rivers because it was superstition. But this just doesn't hold up. The archaeological evidence just suggests that this is absolutely wrong. And what the archaeological evidence suggests is that they were tossed away as rubbish, as trash. And actually on the Medieval Badges website, I wrote a series of blog posts that are focused on the city of Rostock, which is on the Baltic in the former East Germany. I'm following an archaeologist, Jörg Ansorge, but I follow his work. And then I talk about why these badges were thrown out. Because from what the archaeologists can tell us, it is this is not arguable. They were thrown away as trash. The way they're found makes it crystal clear. They were thrown out in sewage. They were thrown away as trash. This is interesting because it means that medieval people also thought of images the way we do. They didn't see them as necessarily having a kind of deep ritualistic 
continuing meaning, but rather they could lose their aura. They could lose <laughs> meaning and then they could just be, they were disposable. They could be disposable. Mm-hmm. So why am I telling you all this? So they survive in water. That's where we find them mostly because that creates an archaeological environment in which they can easily survive. They used creeks and streams for their sewers. And in these German cities, this is a different thing, but the late medieval German cities, they built up land in order to build. And so they brought soil from other places and dumped it. And so they were bringing soil that was often refuse soil and dumping. And so, so these badges survive as jumbled up in other refuse. Why are we talking about this? I don't remember. Anyway. Well, I think one of the things in the book was saying that they might have been collected together to be melted down and reused. Oh, yes, and they, that's, they might that's, possibly sink. Right, right. <laughs> that's uh, Karin Brummer's theory. Because some of them are in really big deposits. And that looks like a barge or something that had a bunch of recyclable metal and sank. There's another reason that we know that we can surmise strongly that badges were made, that they were recycled. Some of them have been analyzed. Their chemical composition has been analyzed. And when you do that, you see that the relative proportions of the different metals that they're made out of, it's constantly fluctuated, (laughs) which means that they're being made out of recycled materials. And remember, leadsmiths are making a lot more things than badges. I mean, think of all the uses of lead. They're making roof linings. They're making all those. They're called cams, I think, or cames, the, uh, the, the pieces that separate window panes from one another in stained glass, but also regular glass. So lead is used at watt pipes, right? So lead is used all over the place in the Middle Ages. And this is just one sideline use of lead. Yes, they're reusing lead and badges. If you had, you know, a bunch of badges that didn't come out right or that you found on the street, you just probably just throw them in the melting pot with everything else. So this is a book that has obviously lots of facts, or we wouldn't have been able to talk this much about it. But you also put fictional introductions to each of the chapters. So why did you decide to take that tack? That's a really good question. So at one point when I was working on the book, and I had hit kind of a standstill, it was a, during the summer, and I, I just sat down. And over the course of a month or two, I wrote all of these things. I just wrote them. And then I thought, what am I going to do with them? At that point, this is 10 years ago, I suppose, I was sharing chapters of the book with students sometimes, with undergraduates at Duke University. So I thought, I'm just going to attach them to the chapters. They're just going to be the introduction. And I did that, and the students always loved them. They absolutely loved them. So that has always been the response to them. When people read them, they like them. So I thought, well, I will leave them in. And I think that what they maybe accomplish is that they persuade the reader to keep going into the chapter. Does that make sense? That they sort of engage the reader and then give them an imaginative context, which hopefully persuades them to wade through the monograph material that follows. What do you think? What was your response? I didn't feel I needed to be persuaded to go into the, the actual chapters. So I think it's a very readable book. So for me, it felt more like an illustration. How are they used? And this is how they were used. So I think that's a good one because you can say all you want in nonfiction, this is how it was used. But to actually get a human face on the use of these badges, I think, is an interesting way to put it in there and uh, definitely unique. I liked it. Good. I'm glad it worked. So for people who are going to be teaching about medieval badges, this is a great way to do it. I think 
because students will want to learn more about these people and how they use badges. I think also as a teacher myself, we increasingly in any in my fields use exercises, writing exercises, where we ask students to um, adapt something or, you know, I teach fairy tales because that's a German thing in my field is German literature, actually. And one of the exercises will often be write your own fairy tale. And I think you could do that with this too, you know, having read the chapter on pilgrimage and, you know, write your own little scenario of a plausible historical figure encountering, using, losing, whatever a badge. Perhaps it can stimulate that kind of imaginative engagement as well. I think that's good whenever you're looking at material culture to really push people into thinking of of it in human terms. How is this used and who is using it? So I think that's experimental and I love it. Well, obviously, there is so much more to learn about medieval badges. And I'm going to send everyone to the website that you're working on so that they can learn more. But thanks so much, Anne-Marie, for being here because this was fascinating. You're welcome. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. To find out more about Anne-Marie's work on medieval badges, you can visit her project's website at medievalbadges.ca. Her new book is Medieval Badges, Their Wearers and Their Worlds. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before we go, here's Peter from Medievalist.net to tell us what's on the website. What's new this week, Peter? Hey, hey. Well, we've got a very good piece by Catherine Walton on English kings who used magic. Apparently, one of them conjured up 300 fiends to build a bridge across the English Channel. As you do. So that was pretty good. So slightly more realistically, apparently the United States Supreme Court is debating medieval law this week. Uh, it's all about the right to bear arms. And so Ken Monshine tells us about that. Kind of interesting how the Middle Ages kind of pops up where you least expect it. Plus, uh, lots more news items, including archaeologists mapping the lost capital of the Mongol Empire. Yeah, I saw some news about that. I can't wait to read more. It's going to be really interesting. Indeed, indeed. Yep. Well, this all sounds really great, Peter. That's a great lineup for this week. Yeah, have fun with it. And thanks. Thanks. Thank you to all of our patrons on patreon.com for all your support every month. We have great stuff for patrons like subscriptions to Medieval Warfare magazine and the Medieval magazine, our book club, and our exclusive maps by Tina Ross. To get in on all the action, please visit patreon.com slash medievalists. 
For everything from badges to beer, follow Medievalist.net on Facebook or Twitter at Medievalist. You can find me, Danielle Sobalski, on social media at 5MIN Medievalist or 5 Minute Medievalist. And you can find my books at all your favorite online bookstores, where you can pre-order the new book, How to Live Like a Monk, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Life, which will be out in hardcover and ebook in just under two weeks on November 23rd. Our music is Beyond the Warriors by Geefrog. Thanks for listening, and have yourself an amazing day. (laughs) 